0: Have you ever seen a high school student take off for college and not handle their newfound freedom well? He was 19 years old, had just graduated from high school. He was a standout swimmer, national class. He was from the Old Wealth Neighborhoods of Dayton, Ohio, and he went out to Stanford. Went to a party that a sorority had one night, and there was indulgence there and freedoms taken that night. One young lady ingested so much alcohol she became unconscious and was lying beside the house in the yard. On his way out of the party, he sexually assaulted her, was apprehended by two students who began to yell at him, and um, a famous trial took place out near Palo Alto. Uh, He was put on probation, sentenced to probation by the judge. The judge was later recalled. Another trial was brought forth, and he went to prison for a season, got out. He's not allowed to go to college, and he will be a sexual offender the rest of his days. He did not handle his freedom well. Violent criminals who are convicted of their crimes and sent to prison, 64% of them will be released, only to be reincarcerated on new charges of violent crime, not handling their freedom well after they are released. Andrew J. Whitaker, Jr., had it made, or so it was thought, he came into financial freedom Christmas night 2002 by hitting the Powerball at $311 million. He rang him up and told him, give me the $114 million in single payout right now. And I think he spent most of the next 18 years lamenting, and I know he spent the last few years of his life lamenting how he had used his newfound financial freedom. He had buried several loved ones. His house burned down, multiple thefts into the stuff that he had bought. He said before he died a broken man in 2020, not having handled his financial freedom very well. I'm only going to be remembered as the lunatic who won the lottery. I'm not proud of that. I wanted to be remembered as someone who helped a lot of people. Now, there are three examples of not handling freedom well. We need to handle our freedom well. Graceland is a land of freedom apart from the external constraints of the law. When we come in to know Jesus Christ as our Savior, we then conduct our lives not on the basis of the law saying, do this and do that, external pressure imposed upon us by the law, but by that internal call of the Spirit of God who empowers us to obey and render to our Lord a life that brings him pleasure. Graceland is a land of freedom. Grace is free. Or what shall we say? Free, free, free. The mature handle freedom well. The elementary principles of the law are For those not understanding and appropriating grace. So the question before us in this passage this morning, in the book of Galatians, as we go through this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote is this. How are we handling our freedom? How are we stewarding the grace of God, actually? How are we doing at Calvary? What is our freedom for? We've been called to freedom. What's it for? What do we do with it? Come with me to Galatians chapter 5. We're continuing our trek through this great epistle and this chapter. I'm going to begin reading in the passage that I spoke of last week, Galatians 5, 7 through 12. But the verses of our focus are 13, 14, and 15 this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Galatians 5, 7 through 15 from the English Standard Version. Now here Paul is finishing his argument that he's made all through the book. Now he turns to apply it with force and explain freedom. Look at chapter 2 and verse 4 yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. Look at chapter 4 and verse 3. In the same way also, we, we, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. He goes on to say in chapter 4, verses 24 and 25, in contrasting Sarah, Abraham's wife, and Hagar, the handmaid through which Ishmael comes, Hagar was a bondservant in the law, by the law. Sarah, a free woman, contrasting the bond and the free. Then we come to chapter 5 and verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, in this freedom. So he's talking about freedom. God has called us to freedom. But once we come into Graceland, what are we supposed to do with our freedom? Now great I want to go three different directions this morning and say as we talk about the grace of God as we talk about God calling us to this wonderful place Graceland grace has its critics and that's where I want to go first there were critics of grace that were in Galatians secondly I want to ask do they have a point the critics who are knocking grace do they have something to say to us and finally What does grace look like when we use our freedoms in the right way? That's where we'll go. First, grace has its critic. You know, proud people do not like grace because it takes us out of play. We don't get credit for anything. Remember, grace is favor that we get that we don't deserve. It's unmerited favor. We get credit for nothing when it comes to grace we bring nothing to God's table to engage him. He gives us everything in his grace, what we get that we don't deserve. Now, uh, COVID has brought all commerce to be put online. And more than ever, uh, vendors now want you to make recommendations. They want to have you leave a review so if you order something you'll be thundered with requests for oh please leave a review and here's just click this button you'll give us a five star and that'd be really great and so people who go out to buy a product will then look at the reviews well here is Paul who comes into Galatia and he preaches the grace of God God has offered in Jesus Christ that which is absolutely free the gift of salvation it's not based upon our works or our obedience to the law. It's based upon His grace. And so the critics began to say, hey, wait a minute. So let's consider it together. According to verse 1 and verse 13, the gospel brings us to freedom. You heard Jesus say in that uh, Timmy read in that passage, uh, John 8.32, John 8.36, who the Son sets free shall be free indeed. You get to Galatians 5, 1, and Paul's saying, now stand right here on top of the grace of God. Stay here. Stay in grace Grace Graceland is a free land. All the slaves to sin have been emancipated. It's wonderful to be set free, free from guilt, Free from condemnation. So much so that Paul would write, There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Wow. No condemnation before God. That's extraordinary. No shame. That's the cross where the just died for the unjust that he might bring us to God. The obligations to the law that we were living under to find our acceptance that's been released by Jesus who perfectly kept the law, offered himself for us, and rendered the law null and void through its fulfillment in himself. We're free now to obey the gospel. The good news about Jesus is an invitation to come and rely upon Jesus and his righteousness. Come and receive the free gift of salvation and be free from guilt, be free from the threat of hell when we die, be free. Brought about by the grace of God, the gospel brings us to freedom. Now, the law lovers believe the grace lovers live however they want. Those listening to the in the crowd who love the law look over there and they say, "Yeah, you people who love grace, that's awful. You just live however you want to. We over here on this side, we live." trying to keep the law, and that's our badge of honor. That's our way to aggrandize ourselves to God by keeping the law. We're suspicious of you people over there depending upon grace because you can live however you want. Those who want credit for their obedience are suspicious of grace. In China, there are things called social credits. Uh, They track everything and track everyone. And there's a way to make yourself look before the party, the dominant ruling party. If you are uh, posting the right things and going the right places, by the way, if you go to a worship service, that's not a merit. That's a demerit if you're associated with a Christian body. And so you have these social credits, and then you're given more freedom on the basis of how many credits you are accruing. If you're hugged up next to the federal ruling authorities, you have more freedoms than if you are expressing your freedom, say, for example, in worship or in Bible study. Some people look at relating to God like Chinese social credits. You know, I I do the right things, and when I do the right things, then I position myself in the right kind of a relationship with God, and my relationship with God is good. When I don't do the right things, I don't position myself well. And, And so those people who are depending upon the law and do this and do that to be on good stead with God, look at people who are depending upon grace, and they say, man, those people are, they just want a license to do whatever they want. In the past, fundamentalist culture has used the phrase, once in grace, always in grace. Now, I want you to think clear through what I'm about to say. Please, hang on till we get finished. But I don't use that phrase. Do I believe that the gifts of God are revocable? No, the Word of God says the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. When He gives us the gift of salvation... There's a permanence, an eternal permanence to that gift. Do I believe we can be assured of our salvation when we believe in Christ? Absolutely. And it's the most wonderful peace to have in life to know that we are right with God, not because of ourselves, but in spite of ourselves and our sin through Jesus Christ. But some who use the phrase once in grace, always in grace, use it to allude to this notion that, okay, I'm fine with God because I prayed a prayer or did something, and if you press them, hey, are, are you all right with God? Yeah, I, I, they can even say, I got baptized. I even got baptized down at the Baptist church. And praise God for the joy of baptism, this outward expression, visible of the invisible internal reality of God bringing us alive to Jesus. We can't see that, but we can see baptism. And the candidate presents himself to say, in essence, what invisibly can't be seen is now visibly seen in this gesture, now 2,000 years old, of identity with Jesus, his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. The grace of God has brought me into Jesus. That's what we say in baptism. But those people who like the phrase once in grace, always in grace, say that those uh, who wouldn't, uh, you know, they, they look at that phrase and they say, uh, you know what, I, I can live however I want because once I get salvation, I do whatever I want. Now, all I'm saying in being a little resistant to use that phrase is when I read the New Testament, here's what it says. When a person actually and really comes to begin a relationship with Jesus, something incredible happens. They begin to live like they have actually and really come to know Jesus as their Savior. Does that mean they're perfect and without sin? Absolutely not. But it means if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things are passing away, but behold, the new things have come. There's change. So, Uh, some love the phrase once in grace, always in grace because they want to depend on whatever happened in DVBS in 2008 or uh, whatever prayer they prayed with Brother Gumball in the the choir room after the service. And, And I love prayers with Brother Gumball after the service. But the distinguishing mark of the Spirit of God's work in Graceland is a person who loves using their freedom to obey the Lord not the person who is using their freedom to walk away from the Lord. In fact, those who are using their freedom to walk away from the Lord have no reason to believe, based on anything written in the New Testament, that they actually came to know the Lord when they did. Does that mean a believer in Jesus never sins? No, it doesn't. But it means a believer in Jesus is progressively moving closer to the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ as they live out their lives. So the phrase that I appreciate the more is the perseverance of the saints. That those who are actually made alive by Jesus, who've been brought out of nature, a state in which we're dead in Christ, not responsive at all, but who've been made alive in Christ. And what are we made alive to? We're made alive to righteousness. We reckon ourselves dead to sin, but alive into God and his righteousness. And we live like we've been made alive to that. And the consistent practice of living in some other way belies our assertion that we know the Lord because the authentic persevere, the authentic persevere. If you're leaning on a prayer you made in VBS in 2008 with no love for Christ and no interest in obedience, the New Testament holds out no confidence that whatever happened back then was regeneration, being made alive in Christ. Are you alive to righteousness or not? That's what this passage is talking about. And it's inviting us to use our freedom in Christ for grateful obedience. That's where he's going to go next. If you've never been in grace and you're still in nature, you won't continue in grace. But when you come to grace, it is a powerful experience that is sustained over time. And it's told in our perseverance, which is not a monument to us, but his grace's work in our life. When God's grace grips our hearts, it's life-changing. Paul said it like this, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. Can we just stop and may I ask you, if you're online or here with us, have you received the gift of God? That's different than have you ever made a profession of faith and prayed with brother or sister Gumbel. That is, have you received the gift of eternal life Have you been made alive to Jesus? And the question the text is asking us, and it's the effect grace has on us, are we living like we are alive and made alive by grace to the righteousness of God? Not in some external pressure put on us by the law, do this or do that, but that internal compulsion that emerges out of our love for Jesus and desire to be responsive to him. The Bible says to all the law lovers, you can't live how you want because when you know Jesus, you want to live like he wants you to live. There's a reason why the regenerate, those made alive to Jesus, keep going because God has made them alive to such a pursuit. Now, the freedom of Graceland can be misused. You say, Eric, you're calling us to grace. You're calling us to grace. Can't freedom be misused? The answer, yes, it can. And Paul addresses it right here. One can understand why the legalist is worried. You know, Eric, are you saying it, 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 it doesn't relate to us, it relates to God's grace? Yes. Doesn't that then logically follow that I can do whatever I want. Since it's not based upon me, it's based upon grace. The answer is no. And Paul goes on to explain. When I was at Dallas Seminary, they changed the practice in the library of using the copy machine. When I went there, it was all on honor. And by the way, it was one block away of the street in uh, East Dallas and There'd be a lot of people come into the library, including a lot of seminary students. But if you're reading an article, say, man, I I need this for class. You go up, copy five pages, go over, throw a quarter down. At the time, it was a nickel a page. They changed it because the honor system didn't seem to be working along the way. There were some who were using freedoms in the honor system (laughs) that wasn't accruing right because at the end of the day, they'd count quarters, and then they'd look at that Dial for how many copies have been made, and they'd scratch their head and say, something is not adding up. Well, Paul is saying we can abuse our freedom. Look at verse 13. We can abuse our freedom through indulging the flesh. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. This word opportunity is an incredible word. It comes out of the vocabulary of military campaigns. It's a verb about the armies positioning themselves right at the right place to take advantage when the military expedition starts. There's the buildup. There's the positioning. That's, that action is captured by this verb, opportunity. And what Paul is saying is, we have been given this glorious freedom in Christ. Don't use it to build up the opportunity to indulge your flesh. Now, he's going to talk about the flesh. We're going to talk about the works of the flesh. That's coming up here a few verses later in verses 19 and 20. He's going to contrast that with the works of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. So this is paving the way for what he's going to discuss in these next verses, which if God allows us to be here next Sunday, that's where we will be. Our flesh constantly cries out, give me, give me, give me. Now, I usually don't pay attention to what Poxitani Phil does, but apparently he did his thing this week, and I actually forgot what he said. I don't know whether I have six more weeks or not. I just The weather never clears up for six weeks after he does anything as I look at it. But anyway, Phil did his thing this week, uh, and, and, and he, uh, he, he predict Now, when that six weeks is over, about two weeks later, the birds will start to sing. And they'll start making their nest. And about two weeks later, they'll start laying eggs. And about two weeks later, you know, we'll hear the little chicks. And you've seen those pictures before of a mom who gets the uh, worm, flies back into the nest, and there they all are. I thought of that. That's that's the flesh, is it not? Just begging us all the time. I'm hungry, feed me. I'm hungry, feed me. This will help you. Be indulgent. I invite you here. By the way, Greater ones than you and me, spiritually, more faith, more years of experience, more faithfulness, greater ones than you and me have fallen into fleshly indulgence. Paul says, don't use your freedom there. Don't go there. And though it beckons us, every honest pilgrim fears, feels the power of the flesh. Freedom Paul is saying, is not a gateway for fleshly indulgence. So the accusation, well, then you believe in grace, you can live however you want to. The apostle Paul stands up and says, no, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And by the way, God is not keeping us from something wonderful. He's trying to prevent disaster in calling us to himself, preserving for our good what he's asked us to do. Satan is a jerk. He sucks us in. Indulge your flesh. Go headlong. Nothing will happen. It's not worth it. Unconsciously, we become addicted. We look at that first image and say, it won't hurt, just little eye candy, and then find ourselves neck deep and our goose cooked. By the way, has God brought you to face any indulgence that may be known only to yourself, but you're here this morning. God, in his grace, will meet with you. You say, Eric, you don't understand. I'm, I'm in pretty deep. Where sin did abound, we could write in the margin, was pretty deep. God's grace did much more abound. And many of us, beginning with me, can bear witness to the fact that God walks out with the repentant heart from dark places into the light. And many of us have come to really appreciate that verse where it says, the blood of Jesus Christ keeps on cleansing us from sin. God's grace is that good. Has God brought you here this morning? There's a uh, very influential, uh, classic African-American pastor in Chicago got up to preach one morning in church, and he was going to pray beforehand. And he said, Lord, you have issued warrants for arrest that you are giving out this morning. And you are bringing them to your grace. It's kind a movie, and he said it with a lot more classy rhetoric than that. But maybe God has brought you here this morning on purpose to give you a future and a hope and unburden your heart. There's a way forward, and it's a way. Graceland, you'll come there and you'll never want to leave. It's that good. Has God brought you here for such purpose this morning? Now, the flesh is not the only area that we can indulge in and misuse our freedom. Notice verse 15. We can abuse our freedom through tearing each other to pieces, ripping each other apart. This verb that he uses in verse 15, bite and devour one another, those two verbs, it's, it's verbs reminiscent of two animals that are in a death match and are ripping each other's flesh off of their bodies in the middle of the fight. Biting and devouring one another. And it's very cryptic, the description. It's of ravenous animals. I'm next to a church now. You say, Eric, what's going on? Well, biting and devouring each other, that's what's going on. And there's flesh that over the last nine months has been strewn all over the place. And it's a sad moment. Well, how'd they ever get there? Well, people began to take advantage of freedom thinking, I can just say whatever I want about whomever I want to. By the way, how do we use the freedom to communicate? Whether it's on Facebook or through Twitter or whether it's through TikTok or whether it's through Instagram. How are we choosing to use our freedom to communicate? By the way, it is... Should not be. It is astonishing to me what people post on Facebook. I'm not on Facebook. It's not because I'm a hero. I've just dealt with more problems in church ministry from Facebook stuff that I just don't want to be a part of that. If if some post causes a problem, I have to get to a user who shows me the post, and I I have a pending appointment right now because of a post and what has come out of that. What are you doing with your posts? We feel more emboldened because we don't have to face the person. We would never say to the person's face what we boldly declare on our social media because there seems to be to us no consequence. But if we are coming under the umbrella of biting and devouring one another, why would we do that? By the way, Pastors in overseeing leadership in church ministries know the underbelly of the church. You know what? It's not pretty. There's sin being repented of. There's sin being hidden. There's marriages that ought to be at different places. Eric, why are you taking a Sunday next Sunday? You, you, you're trying to pound the lovely single people in our church into the ground? no. Because there's never been a day when we need to be more clear on God's plan for marriage and we want to stop and celebrate. And if we can't celebrate it here, where in the world can we celebrate it? That's why we're doing next Sunday. But there are marriages that need encouragement. The, under- the underbelly is not pretty. After a while, you just become realistic and you realize, beginning with the preacher, we're all broken and susceptible to sin. We all need the grace of God. We're on our way home. We're not who we once were, but we're not yet who we're going to be and we're being transformed, but we still need grace and we need forgiveness and pouring out grace and forgiveness actually brings us unto health and a more clear understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. But why would anyone... Okay, let's just take Calvary Baptist Church as a church. Can we criticize Calvary Baptist Church right now? Yeah, we can. Are there things that we can critically reflect upon? Yeah, we can. Ought we resist critically thinking through our ministry? No, not at all. Ought we play it out on Facebook in all of its glory with all of our adjectives? I mean, do you realize that we're going to be held account for every word we've used? And for a guy given to surplusage, you know, how can I sleep? You know, I, I don't know. Biting and devouring one another. Here is the world looking for love. And they're glancing at the church. And what do they see? In some places, they see a ravenous animal ripping flesh off of a carcass. Paul said, don't do that. How about a fountain of love? By this, by, by this, by this, everybody will know that you are my disciples. That once, one time, Warren Wearsby was your pastor. And the church in a moment got tri-county famous and we sold the notes. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. That in this moment, there's an active love that we have for each other that pursues each other and bears each other's burdens and is humbly realistic about our expectations of others because we all know we are a mess and we need the grace of God and he brings it and he brings us unto health through this way of holding on to him. This is how they know. First Peter 4, 8, above all, Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Proverbs ten nineteen. when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. The tongue is a major area where we take freedom we ought not take. Eric, but it's true. I said it. Do you realize all true things don't need to be said? You know what, I love people who pour grace on everything, even in speech. What about Calvary's history? What about Calvary's present? What about the effect of the tongue, the pen, the cell phone, the keyboard? Okay, if those are areas we aren't supposed to use our freedom in, where are we supposed to use our freedom? Look at verses 13 and 14. We are to exploit our freedom with the opportunity of love. What do we do with our freedom? You, you just, you're going to use your freedom and sin over there in Graceland. No, in Graceland, we use our freedom to love other people. And what's interesting, all these people who love the law, do this, do that. Do you know what the whole law is summed up in? Loving our neighbor. You like the law, you'll love this. Love your neighbor as yourself. That captures the whole law. That's how we use our freedom, not building a beachhead to use our indulgent flesh, not building a beachhead to swoop down upon biting and devouring speech, building a beachhead that moves in to love others. That's the essence of the law. That's what we do with our freedom. We love other people. We take the freedom to deny ourselves, put someone else's needs in front of our own, and reach for them. That's love. That's the whole law. This is the one area to exploit our freedom in loving others. We love first, we love most, we love selflessly. Are we exploiting this freedom? Are we a loving church? Are we made up of friendships? That are characterized by love and acceptance and goodwill and wanting the best. Are we a part of a loving life group? Are we a part of marriages that love is alive in the marriage? And there's a a great contest in those kind of marriages is who's going to be the most selfless? And it's a race between the husband and the wife. You get the wife trying to outwit her husband in selflessness. You get the husband trying to outwit his wife in selflessness, giving themselves to each other in love. You have a great home that's healthy. And however idealistic, that's what God has called us to. That's how we use our freedom. How about our... Life groups. How are we at work? By this, all men will know, you're my disciples. Zig Ziglar, uh, a former generation motivational speaker, gone all the time through the week. Uh, Andy taught his son in school. but Anyway, he he, he teach Sunday school First Baptist Church in Dallas, and he was quite an animated character. Actually, his lectures were kind of fun to wa- watch. But anyway, we went to his class one day He told a story. Now, the story is really bad theologically. By that, I mean what he says about hell is not true. Uh, What he says about hell, it's uh, it's a made-up story illustrating a point. But he talks about a guy who went to heaven, and he looked at heaven, and he couldn't believe it. It was the most opulent banquet room that he had ever seen. Ornately, everything was laid out, the most sumptuous portions of the best foods that one could ever imagine was there in superabundance. And the mood in the room could not be happier. And the, the, the jovial nature that everyone was relating was incredible. And there seemed to be only one thing in that room that didn't make sense. It was the flatware, the silverware. It was five feet long but it actually made for this incredible environment in which the only way to be satisfied, and it's the way of heaven, was to gouge the meat and the vegetables and the desserts and the salads and feed it to somebody else with your five-foot-long silverware. And everybody was in a race to see who could satisfy the other the most. And he said, this is incredible. He said, I'm going to take you to hell. And he went to hell. He was shocked. He was utterly shocked when he got there. It was a banquet table in the most incredible room that was full of opulence and full of food that was the king's table. And it had everything that you'd ever want to eat all the way down. And the room was full of sourpusses. Everybody was suffering. Nobody was eating anything. And he looked, and the same flatware that was in heaven was in hell. But what made hell go around as the Zig Ziglar story goes was the fact that they could only conceive of feeding themselves and had no means to find any joy other than to sit there and rot right next to what would have brought them vivid, satiating life and that good food, but they they were consumed with themselves. What are you doing with your silverware? Who are we at Calvary? Graceland is great because of what it does to stimulate how we relate. Oh, we need the Spirit's help, do we not? It's easy to preach, it's harder to live, and we need God's help to be selfless. And take that silverware and find that the joy in life is satisfying others and not ourselves. That's what we discover from the cross, because God gave up himself so that we could have life. And he's called us to such a life of love. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the freedom that we have been brought to in Graceland. Now, Lord, hear us. We're going to sing these lyrics, and they're like a prayer to the Holy Spirit to come and help us. And, Father, I don't know how you've used this message this morning, but you've plowed my heart. Lord, how are we using our freedom? Who needs to talk to you and get their heart right with you this morning? Who needs to come to you and receive the free gift of eternal life? Righteousness wrapped up in a gift given that has nothing to do with us. Who has a marriage that they can't remember the last time they've been selfless? Who needs the grace of God to deliver on what you've asked us to do? I pray with Augustine, Lord, demand what you will, but supply what you demand. Oh, come Holy Spirit, we use this song as our prayer. Work in our midst, hear us pray. In Jesus' name, amen.